What is going on, everyone? Welcome into the Decade Investor Podcast. I'm here today with Mark Palmer. Mark has an interesting story because he started in the financial services industry and then left the industry. But now he shares what he has learned about money on his own social media. Mark, welcome into the podcast. Colin, thank you very much for having me. Um, this is actually my podcasting debut. So I'm excited to make that debut on your show. And I know that I'm not the first to make their debut on your show. So props to you for letting us rookies take a stab. <laughs> yeah, I I, uh, I find it interesting to bring people that maybe aren't necessarily uh, like podcast experts or like um, people that aren't necessarily always going on shows because uh, you you share content on social media um, and you you have a story that's very interesting. And uh, I would love to you know be that avenue that is other than writing, you know, written form of content one way, but to speak it out. And, and as you said, before we hit record, sometimes you like to ramble. I do too. Uh, and it lets you kind of hit different points of uh, stories or, or topics or tips that uh, writing, you just can't expand on as much. Absolutely. And I think this, you know, hearing my voice will also help people like, okay, there is a real person behind that account. It's not just a typewriter that spits out this random content online. Um, he does, have a life and feelings and such. And I mean, maybe they still won't care about my feelings and that's perfectly okay, but um, it's good to, to have this different form of content too. Yeah. Mark, Mark GPT. Yeah. Uh, right. Right. I don't think anyone would use that too much, but <laughs> maybe in the future. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, so speaking of your story, um, a few days ago or a week ago or so you posted on Twitter or X, I always refer to either, but <laughs> Twitter slash X, which Mark's Twitter slash X will be uh, linked down in the show notes if you want to check them out and give them a follow. Uh, but you you kind of wrote a long form content about your story. Uh, and we'll kind of talk about your story uh, about you know how you got to where you are and you're investing in your personal uh, career. But uh, you said that when you turned 18, most people go to the casino, the, the, uh, do, do certain things, right? That, that when they turn 18 and you said you went and opened up an investment account. Uh, and then I was reading that. I was like, Oh, good. And then I laughed because you go, and then I went to the casino. Uh, <laughs> I'm curious. Uh, obviously we'll talk about investing, but do you remember if you won or lost money that night at the casino? Yeah, I did actually win. I remember exactly how much I won too, because I posted about it on Facebook. It said something along the lines of, oh, great 18th birthday, won $85 playing blackjack. Um, and actually someone commented on it and was like, you got to get your stacks up. Like, don't be bragging about winning $85. But I was like, I'm a senior in high school. 85 bucks is a lot. I don't have a job. I was just playing sports. So it was a great night. Um, and the investing account, you know, getting that opened, it's kind of my order of operations, like take care of business and then have fun afterwards. Uh, I still live by that to this day. Yeah. And speaking of investing, um, well, let me go back to the, the casino side. Uh, I, I remember my first time at the casino. I actually went to Vegas was my first experience at a casino. Wow. You and, went uh, right to it. <laughs> I went right to it and I didn't win. Uh, and I don't like losing money um, at all, but you can always have a little fun, right? And then the next time For I sure. went was... Where my like where I live now at a local casino, and I ended up winning pretty good, like a, a little over a thousand bucks when I bought oh, wow. in blackjack for two hundred. So then I thought I went from like losing, you know, almost everything in Vegas to uh, doing very very well at like my local casino. So I was like experienced the low low to the high high, uh, and then I realized usually you lose more than you win. Uh, right, I learned that lesson. 
<laughs> yeah, the house always gives themselves the best odds. You realize that over time. Everyone gets lucky here and there, though, and it keeps them coming back. Uh, similar to my yeah. golf game, you know, every time, every now and then I have a few good shots where I'm like, all right, I could get good at this. But in the end, it, it hasn't quite worked out yet. So if we go back to when you were 18 years old and you opened up that first investment account, uh, why did you open it at 18? Like, what was the reasoning? Like you said, most people will go to the casino or go do other things. Why did you decide to open up that investment account? Yeah, I'm actually pretty lucky because we always talk about as finance creators and even people who aren't finance creators that there should be a personal finance class in high school. And I actually had that option as an elective. Um, so I took it. I didn't really know what I was getting into. I just thought this is probably going to be helpful. Um, and one of the days I specifically remember a financial advisor came as a guest speaker to our class and taught us about uh, the rule of 72, which I still like to preach today, um, you know, talking about how long it takes to double your money at a specific interest rate. And she showed us all these figures. And if you start at age 18 versus if you start at age 30. And it's a monumental difference in how much money you can make when you start earlier. Um, granted, I didn't have that much money to be investing at the time, but that was kind of the point that she was making was you don't need as much when you start earlier. So I was 17 at the time that she came in and gave us this whole um, lecture and it got me pumped up. It was a light bulb moment for me. And I kind of marked my 18th birthday on the calendar. I was like, this is the day that I can go have an account in my name and start making my own investment decisions. So the day I turned 18, I went over there, opened an account. I uh, had no idea what I was doing. Like she didn't you know, give us obviously like, and then you have to invest in this specific thing. But um, I just, I felt accomplished right away. Like, all right, this was step one. And I checked that box. So it was, um, I, I owe a lot of credit to this woman that I, I have no idea what her name is or anything, but she <laughs> is the one who kind of gave that nudge that uh, inspired me to do that. So if you put yourself back in, 18 year old Mark, um, you know, when you were going to open up that investment account, right? You were driving to uh, Scott Trade, I think you said it was. Um, mm -hmm. You're driving there uh, or going there. Um, was there anything that you had thought investing was, right? You had this like one uh, thought about investing, like, I think investing is this. And then now, um, you know, progressing through your investing career, you might have. Un, like had to unlearn that thought and learn, no, that's not true. Investing is actually this. Like, was there a misconception you had at the beginning that you had to overcome that you've now learned that was a misconception? Yeah. Um, I thought it would be a lot more active and involved of a process. Like, you know, open the account and then you buy something. And then like, once it goes up a certain amount, quick sell it at the top and then find something else that's low. So you can buy into that. And then once that goes up, sell that. Like I thought it was going to be constant monitoring of prices and, you know, making sure you're getting out at the right time and getting in at the right time. Um, and, you know, I, I was guilty of turning on CNBC, listening to Kramer. I took notes. I literally had a notepad like, OK, AK Steel, like that's the company I should be looking at right now. And then, OK, Bank of America, that's a good one right now, too. And <laughs> looking back, like I, I was foolish. But, um, you know, it works for some people. But for me, that is not my style. I'm a, I'm a buy and hold investor. And back then, I had, I had no idea that that's what I would end up being. But um, I, I did not have success with the whole trying to actively trade. 
something that you kind of have to learn and you just have to do it. Like I, I feel like you could say to someone a million times, sometimes just buying and holding and not being active is a good strategy to follow, but to actually have to be in that and to actually like for that person to go and learn that sometimes being active is not the best uh, outcome. They just have to like go and do it. And so that's a good learning lesson that has probably helped pay many, many quote unquote dividends, actual like literal <laughs> dividends and, you know, like it, like not literal dividends. That, that, that learning lessons probably helped a ton. For sure. We all kind of have our egos as investors and we all think, oh, yeah, I, I get it. Most people can't beat the market by actively trading, but most people aren't me. Like, I bet I could do it. Like, it can't be that hard. Um, but the, the market's cruel in its lessons, and especially with that in particular. It's, uh, it's not as easy as anyone thinks. There's no one who can consistently do it by actively trading um, and never have, you know, a down year or have, you know, bad decisions where the, the overall market outperforms them because buying and holding has always prevailed um, for, you know, 99% of people, I would say. And that kind of brings us to our second question or the next question here is what do you think separates a quote unquote successful investor? And I don't mean like, you know, successful in terms of millions of dollars, but like just successful in strategy investor from an investor that might not might not be as successful or I don't want to say failure, but someone that's just not necessarily doing as well um, or not doing good in the market. Yeah, I would say limiting distractions or at least limiting how much you let distractions affect you because there's always going to be tons of noise, tons of reasons that the market's about to collapse, reasons that we're about to go into a recession or the Great Depression. I witnessed throughout my career in the financial services industry, so many people make mistakes because they believed one of these distractions and they believed that, hey, it's all about to go down. I need to pull my money out now before it's too late. And then the opposite happens. And now they're sitting on the sidelines and they just missed all these gains. And they're playing the game of, okay, do I enter back in at all the all-time highs of the market right now? Or do I wait and hope that it actually does pull all the way back? And then they'd at best probably be re-entering at the price that they got out at. So I see people all the time let distractions get to them. Um, one example I like to give is uh, elections. So 2016, everyone was saying if Donald Trump shocks the world and gets elected, the market's going to crash because he's going to be so hard on our allies, our trade allies. He's going to mark up all the tariffs and put in all these new you know, regulations that are going to just hurt our deals with our trade partners and the market's going to crash because of it. Like get out if he, you know, starts showing that he's going to end up winning. Well, he won the election and the market rallied. It absolutely skyrocketed and for a long time too. So people that listened to that type of advice and commentary got absolutely burned. And it's just, it's not something that can be predicted by certain metrics like that. Yes, sometimes those predictions do work out, but long term, um, you know, as a long term investor, you got to always zoom out and focus on the long term. I think to answer your question in a very roundabout way, it's that zooming out and and not letting short term distractions affect your long term strategy. I, I think that's a perfect way of encompassing 
a great uh, lesson that separates certain different uh, type of investors, uh, successful to maybe not as successful investors. You mentioned in that um, you used to be in the financial services industry. Um, and, and based on that long post I was talking about earlier on in the episode, you're no longer in it. Um, and what I, you kind of share that in that post, but maybe for those that are listening, curious as to why you were in the financial services industry, now you're not, um, maybe just a little bit of a background there. For sure. And I'll preface this by saying I have the utmost respect for those who are in the industry, um, advisors especially. I know a lot of people rip on advisors, say that they're you know money hungry or they're charged too high of fees and such. I have the opposite belief. Yes, there are some bad apples, but I think advisors don't get paid enough in many cases because they do so much more than the average person realizes. Um, so my experience is definitely not indicative of the industry as a whole. But as far as my experience went, um, I started off at a kind of startup financial planning firm as an advisor. And I got into the industry because I really like investments. But I realized pretty quickly at the job that I took, it was more heavily focused on being an insurance salesman, which just was not something that I, I cared much about. I gave it a shot for a little while eventually said, you know what, I'm going to try something else. Um, so I went to more of a support role at a bigger financial planning firm. And I really enjoyed that. That had a lot more work-life balance because as an advisor, I felt like I was constantly on the clock, constantly helping people. I wasn't getting paid for most of the help I was giving them. Um, and then, you know, here and there you, you sell some insurance and it doesn't even come close to giving you like a fair hourly wage, it felt like. And that's just kind of how the early stages are as an advisor. It, it takes a lot of time, but I didn't um, give myself a, a good enough chance to actually succeed that way. So I, I went to a support role. Um, I was on a salary at that point and I enjoyed that a lot. Um, but I also couldn't be as hands-on with clients at that point. And that's where I would see the people you know, make these terrible mistakes. Even advisors I saw make terrible mistakes during covid there was an advisor that um, he wanted me to help him rebalance all of his book of business to get pretty much everyone, you know, 85% of their portfolio out of the market because he thought it's already crashed so much and it's going to continue to crash because the world is shut down right now. Like, how could it go up? That was his theory. And I couldn't stop him. Like, I couldn't be like, I, no, I refuse to do that. Like, in my support role, I was not able to do that. So I, I had to kind of go along with it. And that was my first time of being like, I don't know if I can do this with a, a clean conscience, like, cause deep down I knew this was a, a terrible decision. And sure enough, it took only like a month for the market to rocket higher. And I, that advisor is still to this day, probably having a very tough time with his conscience. And, um, I, I eventually, you know, with all the regulations and such in the industry and, and how hands-off I had to be in that support role, I decided, um, I'm going to start kind of listening to other options out there for a career and um, a tech company. And I got into discussing and eventually I decided, you know what, let's just test the waters in a whole different industry. Now I work for a tech company and I kind of can keep my passion of personal finance on the side with, um, you know, posting content online, talking with people like you. I wasn't able to really do this when I worked for the big company because they had such strict compliance uh, regulations. Like they would tell me, you know, if you're going to talk about personal finance with anyone or post online, like it has to go through our compliance department, which is like a six week approval process. And I was like, all right, 
I would never be able to have a, a X account or Twitter account at the time um, with that type of rule. So um, bottom line, I'm out of the industry now, but I have much more freedom and flexibility to talk about my passion um, with my current setup. And speaking of that passion, uh, you, you talk a lot on social media about uh, becoming work optional. Um, I love that. But in your own words, like what what does that mean to you, becoming work optional? Yeah, so it is pretty straightforward where it means reaching a point financially where you have the option to work or not work. You no longer need income. You have enough money, whether it's stashed away that you can withdraw from or um a passive income that's going to arrive, you know, periodically that will fund your life, um, both needs and wants. So obviously it's not something you can just say, oh, I want to do that and then have it happen within months. It takes a lot of time to get to that point. I'm far away from that point myself, but uh, definitely working towards it. And kind of the reason that I think it's so powerful is we really do only live once as cheesy as that is. And I would like to for as much of my life as possible, have the option to do what I want, when I want, where I want, with who I want, however often I want to. Um, and as long as I'm locked into a job, I will probably be committing at least 40 hours a week to that job. And if I'm not work optional, I will want to you know, obviously maximize how much money I'm making as well. Um, whereas if I am work optional, I can spend my time working on whatever I want. You know, I don't look at work optional as early retirement necessarily. It's definitely an option if you're at that point, but I would prefer to, uh, continue to work, but just on passions or, you know, maybe start my own business someday that I, you know, don't really have to care as much about how it does because I don't need the income. I could scale my hours down quite a bit. Um, the opportunities are endless, and I think reaching that point just unlocks that next level, next layer of life fulfillment where you know you can do whatever you want whenever you want to. And um, it's something that I think most people would actually enjoy and and should work towards if they have a little bit of ambition to start early and put in the time and effort. Yeah, and speaking on that, uh, someone hears that and they're like, "This work optional thing sounds great." Uh, how or what can they do today? What actionable steps can they take today to get to the point where they could have the option to become work optional? Do you have like a, a blueprint or just some steps that people can follow to get to that point? Like I can say that could be like an entire episode, you know, in and of itself or entire thing. Um, but yeah, do you have like a resource or a few different things that people can do? Yeah. So I did put together a course um, that I actually just released this week and I'll plug that real quick. It is a bunch of video modules that take you step by step through what my wife and I are doing. Um, A lot of people that reach this work optional lifestyle, they don't have kids. They don't care about raising a family. It's just them or them and a spouse who just want to travel the world and more power to them. But we're kind of taking the the long-term approach of it's going to take us some time because we do have a child and we plan to hopefully have more children um, and children aren't cheap. So, um, I put together a course that's kind of, it breaks down what our strategy is. Um, and from a high level, I'll explain some of that. We talk about a freedom fund and that is the money that we need in order to fund this lifestyle of being work optional. So the course is based around determining how much money is needed in that freedom fund based on your situation, 
And then it's also um, how to protect that freedom fund from things that could, you know, pull away from it and then how to grow that freedom fund. And then there's a ton of other content within it that um, is things to consider and that we consider with our own plan. But, um, you know, from a high level, we talk about and I think everyone, regardless of having this goal or not, you got to have your ducks in, in order with an emergency fund, um, the proper insurances and, you know, debt payoff strategies. You don't want to have things like that that could instantly or over time harm your long term financial goals. Um, and then it's also important to grow your money over time, because obviously, if you're just making money and then spending it all, you're never going to get ahead. Um, so becoming work optional is is a long term process. But uh, I think if you give yourself enough time, and especially if you start early enough, anyone can do it. It's much more realistic than people realize. Um, it does take a little sacrifice, but it doesn't mean like we're not giving up you know, traveling. We still travel multiple times a year. And like I said, we're not giving up having children. Um, we're going to take our time, but we're also going to get there, you know, a decade or more before the standard retirement age. Um, and we're pretty confident in that. I love it. I love it. When you started at 18 to where you are now, if you look over that, that time frame, you reflect back. Um, and, and I asked this on uh, one of my other episodes or interviews I did, uh, it, you know, this question is not a braggadocious to be a braggadocious question, but it's simply just a reflection question um, and, and kind of maybe what for other people can listen and, and see, hey, maybe I can have that same sense of accomplishment whenever I get on my journey. Um, and so over your investing career and personal finance career, right, uh, what are you most proud of? Uh, like what, what are you most proud of and, and what you have accomplished uh, when it pertains to money? Sure. Um, I would say consistency is, is one big thing. I've never really had years where it's like, okay, I like just didn't invest for those years. I've consistently been contributing to my accounts since that day that I turned 18, um, and been growing the amounts that we've been putting in there. I would say kind of the biggest difference maker that I had, and I didn't realize it would be such a difference maker at the time was I I did what's called house hacking. Um, out of college, I found a, a four bedroom house, pretty affordable one, bought that. And then three of my buddies, closest friends moved in with me and they paid me rent. And every month their rent would essentially equate to the mortgage amount. We still had utilities and such on top of that. So it's not like I didn't have to pay any living costs, but I was gaining all this equity in this house while my mortgage was essentially being paid for for me. Um, And that unlocked a lot more potential with what I could do with my own income um, because I was living really cheaply. I was charging cheap rent to my friends. We were enjoying our lives in our 20s, um, having a great time living together. And I was able to still invest large amounts of money um, because, well, not not that large, but like more than I would have thought at that age. Um, simply because I had, you know, such a low cost of living and I was gaining equity in this house. Um, and over the time that we, that I owned the house, it actually timed out really well where, um, when it was time to move on and my wife and I were going to get our own place, I was able to sell that house. Many people would say, you know, rent it out, continue renting it out. I'm not a landlord. I'm a lazy investor. I like to, you know, just have my money in the S and P 500 and such, but I sold the house and, it was for you know 
a massive gain because of just the market timing. Um, and we were able to turn around and take all those gains and put it on a pretty nice house um, for my wife and I to start with. So that I would say was kind of like a, an accelerator with my wealth journey. Um, it would have been great to keep that house and collect rent, or it would have been great to, you know, put the gains from selling that house into the stock market. But that's not my only goals in life. Um, I also enjoy having, you know, a house in a neighborhood that we like. And this is somewhere that we'll hopefully call home for a really long time together, um, my wife and our family. So I would say the house hacking was an underrated um, piece of my story that looking back, like, I'm so glad I did. It's cool to hear that because I've, I've heard of people like doing house hacking and, and being successful at it. Um, and and um, it's good to hear that that was an accelerator of it. And in my opinion, I've never done this. So I'm coming from this opinion from the outside. But I feel like house hacking, if you have the opportunity, is a great way to um, you know, either accelerate or just find ways to you know, maintain a solid foundation for your wealth building journey. Would you agree with that? Oh, definitely. And I wasn't about to do it if I was going to have to live with strangers or something. Like I got lucky on the timing that I happened to have three really good friends that were living and working in the area and they all were looking for somewhere to live too. And I was like, hey, like this, I would have you pay me rent, but it would be much cheaper than you'd have to pay anywhere else in that area. Um, so it was a win-win because they were paying me rent. I was getting rent. They had cheap rent and we all got to live together and enjoy ourselves. Um, we all look back and reminisce. It's one of those things that we'll always share now too. Like, I'll remember when at the house we would do this and um, it it just was an awesome experience. And I would say, you know, everyone I see talk about house hacking online. I don't really hear too many horror stories. It seems like it's it's usually a win for people, even when they do live with people that they don't really know. As long as they're not living with someone who's going to, you know, scam them out of money or steal stuff from them or something, I, I'm, I'm sure it's a, a good decision in most cases. To round out this uh, discussion, I appreciate you again coming on. Um, and, and before I ask this question, uh, Mark, I will link all of his uh, socials and ways you can find him uh, down in the show notes. But uh, is there anywhere else or any other ways other than social media or is that where people should go to learn more about you and, and what you have to offer? Yeah, I would say I'm most active on X. Um, I, I was active on Instagram at one point, but like I just started running out of ideas for reels and such. I'm, I'm not going to like start breaking out any dance moves or anything. So write, writing is probably more my forte. Um, so I would say stick to X for now. That's probably the best way to find me. Okay, cool. Uh, and so my final question is, is if you had one post left on X, right? And it was going to be seen by, let's just say every user uh, on X, um, you know, Elon Musk is going to retweet it. Uh, what financial tips or what parting words would you say as your last post on X? Wow, that's uh, that's tough and on the spot, but I... Kind of my tagline that I like to always fall back on is keep calm and invest on because I think those that's two major things right there. Like keeping calm is very hard to do in this game, even for someone experienced. I'm not going to say I'm that experienced. I'm not like super old. I haven't been through too many crashes or anything, but it's the hardest part of the game is during like a market crash is staying calm and continuing to invest. Um, I would say, you know, somewhere in the the post, I would probably include something about 
remember why you started. We Everyone has goals. People forget those goals during um, emotional moments in the market or the economy. Um, you got to remember why you started and you got to think about the impact of whatever you're about to do. Is that going to affect your chance of reaching where you want to get? So it's not really a, a post. Obviously, I'd have to formulate it and make it sound a little better. <laughs> but um, I would I would definitely work it around that. Yeah, it's perfect. No, I think it's great. Um, let's hope that doesn't happen. You know, hopefully we, we can continue. <laughs> For sure. Have you answered that question on your podcast yet? Uh, I haven't. I haven't. But I would probably say if I had, if I was asked that question, I, I would probably say uh, just to keep on building brick by brick. Um, that would be my answer. Literally everything I've ever experienced in life comes by one step at a time or one brick at a time. And so uh, I live by that mantra. I actually have it tattooed on my leg brick by brick just a reminder to uh i like that like yeah i mean you you invest you know fifty dollars a week or five hundred dollars a month or whatever the number is uh it's it happens one brick at a time you know you don't you don't invest five hundred dollars in one month and then the next month you're you know work optional it doesn't happen yeah you do it every brick by brick and eventually you look up and quote unquote you have a financial house and then maybe you have a financial you know, neighborhood, and then maybe you have a financial empire, um, but those all get built uh, one brick at a time. So that'll be sure. my last post. I dig that. A lot of people forget or they, they let the the big picture intimidate them too much when it's like, hey, start with one brick and you'll be surprised how far you can go over time. So I like that. Yeah. Uh, there's a little insights on your interview. No, I like it, Mark. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, thank you for coming on the show um, and, and sharing your story, sharing your not financial advice and, and sharing your uh, your you know ideas when it comes to investing. So so thanks for coming on the show, Mark. Yeah, thanks a ton for having me. It's been a pleasure and uh, look forward to continuing to interact. Well, there you go. There is the interview. My name is Colin, also known as The Decade Investor. If you enjoy the podcast, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. And if you really enjoy the podcast, please be sure to rate it five stars. But thank you so much for listening and I'll see you in the next episode. Goodbye.